All right, there we are. Sorry, Jeff. That's not Jeff's fault. That's this Jeff's fault. Hey, before the message tonight, a couple of reminders. Sunday's communion, both services, 9 and 11 o'clock. Then next Wednesday is our pie fellowship. If you're bringing a pie or you'd like to bring a pie, please run that by Amanda Mason. Either email her, see her, give her a call. And then uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving is Feed My Starving Children activity, open to everybody in the church, not just to youth and parents. And then that Sunday, the 26th, uh, Josh and Anishka Dietz will be here to share their ministry in Prague, Czechoslovakia. And we're looking forward to having them as well. All right, Acts chapter 19 tonight. Acts chapter 19. Paul goes from Corinth to Ephesus. And we know both of those cities well, if you know your, old, uh, your New Testament, because Paul eventually wrote letters to the Corinthians and also to the local church in Ephesus. And I think tonight you're going to have maybe even a better understanding of why Paul said certain things in the book of Ephesians after you understand what was going on in the city of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. I want to break the chapter down this way. There's going to be the foundation, the way, the reality, the worship, the revival, and the victory. And we're going to pretty much quit at verse 20, and I'll tell you why once we get there. But first of all, the first seven verses, I want to talk about the foundation. And what I mean by the foundation is faith in Jesus Christ, salvation through Jesus. That has to be where it starts. Even Paul said to the Corinthians, there is no other foundation other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say, be careful how you build upon that foundation. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Why do I say the first seven verses are all about the foundation? Faith in Jesus Christ will follow along with me. While pa Apollos was in Corinth, Paul went through the inland regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples there, but they weren't disciples of Jesus Christ. Remember, the word disciple simply means one who's learning, one who is a pupil of someone, okay? So he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why is that important? Because to Paul and to the early church, they understood after Acts chapter 1, the day of Pentecost, that the presence of the Holy Spirit in someone's life would be the indisputable evidence of salvation. Okay? They replied, no. In fact, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul said, then, into what were you baptized? And of course, they say, well, we were into John's baptism, a baptism of repentance, just like Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. So again, Luke isn't giving us every detail, but somewhere then in this course of conversation, notice what Paul is saying. He is telling them to believe in the one because he's, he's following along with John here and what John would have said as well. 
that he's encouraging belief, not in John, not in John's baptism, but belief in the one who was to come after him, that is in Jesus. In other words, Paul is directing their faith. They are to give themselves up to Jesus. They are to entrust themselves completely to Jesus. That's what belief and faith is. When they heard this, again, Luke's not giving us all the details. Obviously, Paul felt that they accepted Christ as their Savior, and the first step then of obedience after salvation was to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul then placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. There were about 12 men in all. So you'll notice also there was immediate evidences of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit once they were saved. So you have here a pattern, if you will. They believed in Jesus, they received the Holy Spirit, and they were baptized. Now, one of the things that trips people up in the book of Acts is they don't realize that Acts is a transitional book. It is transitioning people from the Old Testament economy and way of doing things to the New Testament. So everything that was done in the book of Acts is not something you see repeated anywhere else throughout the Bible or even today. In other words, in that day, Paul laid his hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen anymore. In fact, you don't find that anywhere else in Scripture that that had to be the case. In fact, when you accepted Christ, you didn't have to have somebody come lay hands on you to receive the Holy Spirit. You received the Holy Spirit the moment you accepted Christ, okay? But what I want to point out here is notice that Paul is saying a couple important things. One, the foundation has got to be faith in Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. But then, the indisputable evidence of salvation is not confession. There are many false confessions in the Bible and throughout history of being a Christian. The, the evidence, indisputable evidence of salvation is not being a member of a church. It's not working and serving, you know, in, in ministry. Uh, it, it's not anything like that. It, it's... It's not anything that we sometimes use as, well, this is why I'm a Christian. No, the Bible says there's one indisputable evidence that one is truly saved, and that is that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Paul even said to the Romans, if you are led by the Spirit of God, then you are sons and daughters of God, and that the Spirit of God will bear witness with your human spirit that you are God's child. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Because that's what Paul was saying. If you have the Holy Spirit, then that means you have faith in Christ and you have the foundation that you need for the rest of your life. But that's just the foundation. As I've said many times over the years, Salvation is not the end. It is just the beginning. And so notice then in verse 8 through verse 10, we have talk about the way, and we're going to talk about what that means. 
Paul doesn't leave Christians at just the foundational level. He enters the synagogue, he speaks out fearlessly for three months, addressing and convincing them about the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Christ in believers' hearts. This isn't the literal kingdom that's coming one day. This is the kingdom that now is evidenced through people who accept Christ and and make him the Lord of their life, and he rules and reigns in their life. Now, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, there are mixed responses when we share God's word and God's truth. Some were stubborn, hard, resistant, and refused to believe they were immovable, reviling the way before the congregation. Again, why do these people describe Christians as the way? couple things. One, it's a lifestyle. It is a way of life. So that you're building upon this foundation of faith in Christ a lifestyle, a way of living. And it's describing lives that have been shaped and are being shaped by Jesus. And so we could say it in this way, it is the distinctiveness of Jesus-shaped lives. That's how I define the way. The distinctiveness of Jesus-shaped lives. Because it's not enough for us just to believe in Jesus. Jesus wants us to walk with him And the ultimate goal of our salvation is to become like him, to be conformed to the image of God's own son, Paul says in Romans 8, 29. That's what Jesus and God the Father and God the Spirit predestined us to, was to be like Jesus, the way. So he left them, and he took them away from the synagogue And he began to address them every day in this other lecture hall. And this went on notice for two years so that all who lived in the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord every day for two years. What was God doing here? Well, first of all, important principle. God needs to work in us before God can powerfully work through us. So again, let's go back to the first seven verses. Foundation, belief and faith in Jesus. The evidence of that salvation or faith in Jesus will be the Holy Spirit. One of the first things we should do as a Christian after receiving Jesus Christ and having the Spirit come and indwell us is to be baptized, to be identified publicly with Jesus Christ. And then when the Spirit does come in, there will be evidences of his presence in our life, okay? That leads to a way of life, a lifestyle, And not a a once-a-week lifestyle, an everyday lifestyle. Because God wants to work in us powerfully so that then he can work through us powerfully. So you see the progression here. Now, I want to go back, though, because you know, ever since we had that family meeting about the phase two and all of that, 
that I, I've been sharing how God has been impressing upon me to encourage faithfulness of our people, especially in our context, faithfulness to the house of God. It's one of the things that we as Christians are supposed to be faithful to in our lives. Let's go back to those two words in verse 9, every day. Now, I'm not saying we show up at church every day, but what that tells us is there are certain disciplines and things that we should be building into our lives as part of our lifestyle that we do on a very consistent and regular basis. And again, it is the cumulative effect of just doing these things over time that produces our spiritual growth. We live in a very experiential culture and society. And that kind of mindset has crept into the church where many people in the church today just go from one experience with God to another experience. I'm not against having experiences, but those experiences will never do for you what you just getting up every day and walking with the Lord every day will do for you. You, you just be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. You see, we don't like that because, you know, we want quick fixes. And, and we want to go from point A in our Christian life somewhere down in the middle of the alphabet to, you know, point M or K. Or, and God doesn't work that way. It's step by step by step. And God wants us to learn to walk with him every day. That's why he says, give us this day our daily bread. It is a daily thing. Now, the reason I bring that up is because I want you all to help me to encourage faithfulness in our church because I think it's one of the things that God is saying. Where are my people? Why are they not in my house on a regular basis? You see. Let me share something I, I think is a little eye-opening. If you or I were to attend every Sunday of the year, and every Wednesday of the year, which no one's going to do, right? But let's just say for the sake of this, you attend every Sunday and every Wednesday. Do you know the amount of hours that that, that, that comes up to is less than one quarter of 1% of all the hours that you will spend doing something for the rest of the year? And, and that's why sometimes even I feel like we're fighting a losing battle in a lot of ways because all of us allow ourselves to be bombarded so many more hours of our life throughout the year with all the garbage of the world, and somehow we think that a few hours every week at church is somehow going to counteract all the garbage that we're exposing ourselves to the rest of the year. That's, that's hard. And that's just if we were just faithful. And that's why, though, we need an everyday walk with God. Because we, we need more than even just being faithful to church in order to counteract all the other hours that we are immersed in the world hearing all the stuff that's swirling around us. The way. A lifestyle. An everyday lifestyle, something that we do consistently. 
and regularly. Now, when we go from the foundation to the way, that's going to lead us into a reality. And the reality is that once we start growing spiritually, we're going to begin to encounter an invisible spiritual world. <laughs> we're going to begin to encounter uh, opposition spiritually, okay? And as God works in us and powerfully works through us, look at verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles, mighty works, expressing his power, God's power, through Paul's hands. So there again, God was working powerfully through Paul, but that's because Paul allowed him to, first of all, work powerfully in Paul. He had the right foundation. He was a member of the way. It was a lifestyle every day for him. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his body were brought to the sick and their diseases left them. Listen, God can extend himself and express himself any way he wants to. Okay? That's all I'll say about that. But then notice the end of verse 12. There were also evil spirits present who went out of them. And this is the reality of the cosmic conflict that especially as we grow, we're going to be come aware of and be confronted with because it goes all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, to Genesis 3.15, after the serpent, which was sort of the embodiment, if you will, of Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell. What did God say to the serpent? He said, there's going to be a battle here between you and the woman. There's going to be now a conflict. You and the woman are going to be at odds. And then he goes on to say, and her offspring is going to be in conflict with your offspring, serpent. And he's, her offspring is going to wound your head. Your offspring is going to wound her heel. And so God is basically saying, once the fall of man happened, we entered into this cosmic conflict that everything that you and I experience, even as human beings on earth, is not just human, earthly. It goes way beyond that. It is the conflict of God against Satan and good against evil. And we see it played out on our earth every day. I think we all realize, right, as Christians, that whole mess in the Middle East, that isn't just a conflict between Hamas and Israel and if you want to throw Iran and whoever else you want. That's a conflict between God and Satan. That's a conflict between good and evil. And it's going to continue to be that. And the more you and I walk in the way of allowing Jesus to shape our lives, the more we're going to become aware of this invisible spiritual world around us, and the more we're going to face opposition from that spiritual world. Notice, some itinerant Jewish exorcists, verse 13, 
tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were possessed by evil spirits, saying, I sternly warn you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Now seven sons of a man named Sceva, a Jewish high priest, was doing this. But the evil spirit replied, and don't miss this. First of all, the evil spirit said to them, I know about Jesus. Folks, that word know is a word that means I know him by experience. And boy, did he. Because let's not forget, every evil spirit or demon or whatever you want to call them was at one time an angel in glory before they fell. Understand that. These are angels, fallen angels, who at one time saw the Lord of glory up there in heaven. They are very well aware of who Jesus is. But then don't miss this. He also, the evil spirit says, oh, and I'm acquainted with Paul. In other words, this Paul guy, he's living in such a way that he is posing a threat to our kingdom, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of evil. So he's come on our radar, is what the evil spirit is saying. And we have now made it our business to become acquainted with Paul. Because let me say this at this point. Any Christian who is building on the foundation of Jesus Christ in their life and walking in the way of Jesus is going to eventually become a threat to this other kingdom. And if you are be, being a threat to the other kingdom, the other kingdom is going to become acquainted with you and they're going to put a target on your back. But then notice what the evil spirit said to these other seven. Who are you? Why did the evil spirit not really know them? Because they weren't a threat. And what that tells us is all unbelievers really are off the radar of our spiritual enemy because they don't believe. They're already lying in the hands of the evil one. That's what John says. The world lies in the hands of the evil one. So they're not a threat. So that tells us that the evil spirits, if you will, only are concerned with those Christians who are posing a threat to Satan's kingdom. Then, verse 16, the man who was possessed by the evil spirit jumped on them, beat them, subdued them, overpowered them, and listen, beat them into a pulp and prevailed against them so that they fled from the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And you better believe fear came upon all of them because of what they saw. couple things. This is a great reminder of several things. One, the name of our Lord Jesus is not some magical incantation or formula that someone can use we must recognize the spiritual power, both good and evil, that exists in this world. And it is something on both sides that we better respect at all times and, and realize what we're dealing with and not be trite about it. Because, first of all, you note here, these men who were trying to deal with this evil spirit was totally ill-equipped. First of all, they didn't have Jesus as their foundation. They weren't living the way. 
They were just simply trying to use Jesus' name. And Jesus' name and power will not be used by those that have no dealings with him, first of all. And second of all, even for those of us that know him, we better be very careful about delving into this spiritual world. We better respect it. We don't have to be afraid of it. But here's the thing. Even the word of God says, we're not greater than they are. The one who is in us is greater than they are. So we need to make sure that we are being very careful and very cautious. Listen, in my 39 years of pastoral ministry, have there been times that I have dealt with demon-possessed people and demonic spirits and all that? Absolutely. But I didn't go looking for it. I didn't go running after it. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. In fact, the Bible tells us, for the most part, resist the devil and he'll do what? He'll flee. The Bible never tells us to run after the devil and pick a fight. So the only time you and I should be engaged at a level like we're seeing here in Acts 19 is if we are being led by the Spirit of God to do it. Otherwise, again, sort of like I said Sunday, we're going to be fighting a battle that we have no business fighting, and we're going to be in over our heads real quick, real quick. And I've seen it. I, I've seen Christians' lives completely shattered and blown up by getting involved in, in, with the occult and, and, and all of that. In their own intent, they wanted to try to help, but they were not yet equipped to be able to deal with what they were dealing with. Now, here's what I want us to see, though. This, verse 17, became known, and not only did fear come over them, but notice what else was the result. The name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Why? Because the people in Ephesus were seeing the power that they saw in the occult and in these demonic evil spirits was superseded by the power of Jesus that was being demonstrated through Paul. And there was now this reverence and respect for Jesus that they had never had before. And there was now a worship that was happening for Jesus Christ because of what had went on there. Basically, uh, a failed exorcism, if you will. And God allowed that to show the people of Ephesus, first of all, these two powers exist and they are real. There is a reality there that we need to be aware of. But at the same time, God also allowed it to show very clearly that Jesus Christ is the greatest of all and there is no power greater than his power. And that you and I can be comforted with verses like, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We don't have to be afraid of this invisible spiritual world. And there's not a demon behind every bush. So we don't have to live that way. But we do have to respect and be aware of the reality, especially, as I said, in this progression that we see played out here, of someone who's built their life on the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ, has the indwelling Holy Spirit, is living every day in the way 
allowing Jesus Christ to shape their life, you and I then will begin to be posing a threat to Satan's kingdom, and we will become more aware of the spiritual world that exists around us, and we will also then be looked at as a threat that they will oppose and, and try to derail and discourage and all of that. That's what we call spiritual warfare, right? Now, maybe we have a greater understanding of why out of all the letters that Paul wrote about spiritual warfare to, why did he write Ephesians chapter 6 to the church at Ephesus? You see, because Ephesus was a center of the occult. We know that because notice then what it says in verse 18 and 19, and this is the revival that takes place. Many of those who had believed came forward confessing and making their deeds known. Large numbers of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them up in the presence of everyone. When the value of the books was added up, it was found to be a total of 50,000 silver coins. In that day, that's a lot of money. Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan. Remember what Jesus said? I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus saying, I'm so powerful and I'm so great that I can plant a church in Ephesus right at the stronghold outside the very doors of hell and they're not going to do a thing about it. That should give us courage and comfort. And so you see this revival take place. These people now are turning away from the darkness and turning to the light of Jesus Christ because his name is being lifted up. He's being declared greater than all of the evil spirits and demons and all the darkness that these people have worshipped for years and years. And what does it take to bring about revival? Well, first of all, revivals are simply an act of God's choosing. It's not like, you know, we can manipulate God in some way and that means if we put the quarter in the right way that He's going to bring revival. But what it does mean is that there are times where when God sees people do what these people did, he knows how open they are to his working. Notice, they are bringing what was in the dark into the light. That is one of the keys to experiencing revival in all of our lives. Bringing what we are hiding in the dark into the light. Because it's only when you and I bring into the light what we're hiding in the dark can God deal with it and be overcome. And we experience victory. That's why all the way again back in the book of Genesis, what did Adam and Eve do wrong once they sinned? They tried to hide. That's the natural reaction. We're going to hide our behavior. The problem with that is the only one that can help us to have victory over that behavior and that sin and that addiction is God. And as long as we're hiding it, pretending like it's not there and we're not willing to acknowledge it and confess it, God can't do anything with it. But God can certainly, when we're willing to bring it out into the light and say, God, here it is. This is what I am. This is what I've done. That's when revival can happen. That's when repentance happens. That's when transformation happens. When we bring what has been in the dark out into the light. 
And if you study revivals down through history, that's exactly what you see happening. You see happening what they did in Ephesus. That all of a sudden, even Christians and people that were hiding things, all of a sudden said, Lord, this is the reality of my life. This is who I am. I've been faking it, trying to make it, and, and I've been just fooling myself and fooling others. But this is the reality, God, and I know that, Lord, now that I brought it out of the light, you can heal it, and you can fix it, you can do something with it, but not as long as we hide it. And because of the progression of the foundation and the way and the reality and the worship and the revival comes the victory. Look at verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord continued to grow in power and to prevail. Folks, if there is a verse that I, as the pastor of the Oasis Church, would say, I would love for that to be like the banner over our ministry, it would be Acts 19.20, that the word of the Lord, first of all, would grow, continue to grow in power. It means to continue to exert its power to transform our lives. That's what it means. The transformation of lives comes through the Word of God. Again, the Bible's not for information, it's for transformation. And we have so many Christians today going from Bible study to Bible study, accumulating a lot of Bible knowledge and Bible facts, but it never changes who they are. God wants us to be changed, again, so that we can be more like the way, the truth, and the life, and allow Jesus to shape our lives into a distinct lifestyle that happens every day. And then don't miss though these last three words, and to prevail. That means to be able to overcome and bring victory to people's lives. Isn't that what Jesus said to all the churches in Revelation? He promised them a special reward throughout eternity and blessing to the overcomers, to the ones who would prevail and, and see victory in their life. How does that come? By allowing the Word of God to continue to exert its influence, to transform our lives, to become more like Jesus every day. And in that way, we see victory. That's how it, we prevail. Victory in Jesus through the transforming power of his word. Now, why did I say I was going to stop there and not really deal with the rest of the chapter? Well, I'll say this. Everywhere that Paul went, there was either a revival, a revolution, or a riot. And beginning in verse 21, basically there becomes this mob and there's sort of a riot that takes place. And it's all because all these people now are burning their occultic books and, and, and turning their back on these practices 
And all these people who make money off of this false religion and off of all these books are pretty upset because they see their income going way down. And so they want to basically get rid of Paul and all of his companions who are turning their lives upside down because now they're not going to be as rich as they once were. But eventually, by the end of the chapter, one of the officials in Ephesus gets everybody in the mob calmed down and basically says, look, we're not going to be like this. This is, this is insulting to who we are as Ephesians. If, if you guys want to deal with this, we have court systems and courts to deal with this. Let's take this to our judges, but let's not deal with this in this manner. And he calmed everybody down, and everybody sort of went their own way and diffused the situation. But you can see, this is what God, that's what his word does. It, it upsets things, you know. And so I hope tonight that all of us We've got the right foundation. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's where it starts. That leads to the way. That leads to the reality of this spiritual war and conflict that we're going to come in contact with and these spiritual entities that we need to be aware of and respect. But then it also leads to the worship of Jesus because we realize Jesus is greater than anyone or anything. And that leads, hopefully, to a revival in our hearts of wanting to give him everything that we are and everything that we have, and that leads to victory. The word of God continued to grow and to prevail. That's what I want to see happen here at the Oasis Church. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for the wonder of what happened in that city that was a stronghold of Satan. But God, you did a work in that city. And if you can do a work in Ephesus, you can do a work anywhere, God. Jesus, you're amazing. There's, there's no life that's beyond your grace. There's no city that is so full of darkness that you couldn't turn it around. There's no nation that's too far gone that you can't bring it back. There's no world that exists, God, that you can't do something with because you're God. You're the Lord of the universe. You are the greatest power that ever will be and ever has been. And God, may we just praise you tonight. May we declare your greatness in our lives not just with our lips, but with our life, God, as we lay our lives down for your glory and for your honor. God, go with us, and may your word, God, continue to grow and to prevail in our church and in our individual lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.